As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, help us now, please, I pray. Open our eyes, um, spiritually speaking, to, to see what you have for us. Open our ears, spiritually speaking, to hear what you're saying to us. And open up, really, could we say our hearts, that we might receive what's here. That we might believe what's here, that we might be transformed in our lives by what's here. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to, be, I want to read verses 15 through 21. 2 Corinthians uh, in chapter 5, please. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him uh, thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, if God will help me, I want to take up just verses 16 and 17, really. So let me read them again. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's what I want to do. Now, I'm tempted, I have to tell you, when you read a passage, when I read a passage like this, I just want to go to verse 21. It's a great passage. Uh, Many refer to it as the great exchange for, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And, and, and if I don't get there, I really want to go to this uh, verse 20 that says we're ambassadors for Christ. God's making his appeal to us. We have to put that off because I don't want to miss what is easy to sort of pass by, but really has its, its, its guts in verse 16 that from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Now, it has the word therefore in it. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So, so therefore, the therefore tells me that that statement, Paul came to that statement because of something he had previously said. And if you were here last week, you know that what last week we were talking about, uh, what reasons Paul had for doing what he did. And, and we want to know his reasons because he did what he did. That is, he was an apostle of Jesus, took the gospel to the ends of the earth in those days or the, to the Gentiles, to the nations. So he took the gospel, but he had tremendous opposition. And, and he, he suffered persecution and he suffered from his own weaknesses, spiritually and physically and all that. We've been through that. But, but, but we want to know what, what kept him going. Why did he do this? And you remember he said he did it because he knew the fear of the Lord. 
That is, he, he didn't fear human beings. He didn't fe- fear people. He feared the Lord. So, so it didn't matter what people did to him. He was one who desired to please the Lord. And so he went. Not because people accepted him or not, but that God called him and he feared the Lord. And he had just said that everyone, Paul himself included, would need to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, now we know that that wouldn't incite the kind of fear in Paul that would be the fear of being condemned or the fear of being cast into hell. Because he knew that he had been accepted by God through Jesus. He knew that he was forgiven his sins. He knew that God had declared him righteous. Uh, and so he wasn't afraid in that sense. But the fear that he had was that he didn't want to displease the Lord. He wanted to please him. And so he wanted his life to be that when he appeared before the judgment seat of Christ, that what he had done would be shown to be, have, have been done by faith and shown to be good and shown to be pleasing to the Lord. And, and so, so, so that's why he did it. He wanted to please the Lord. He didn't want to face this judgment seat and not having pleased him. And so he knew the fear of the Lord. So that's why he did it. And, and he knew... The favor of God. In other words, he, he said that what I am is known to God. Other people might not buy that. Other people might not say you're an apostle. But God knew that he was. And so he said, I'm living to please God, not myself. I'm living to please him. And he knows what I am. He knows I'm a sinner and he still saved me. And he still called me. He knows my weakness and yet he still called me. And so God knows what I am. Even if you don't buy it. Who I am as an apostle, God does so. I'm going to continue to do it because, because I'm secure in him, even if you reject me. And then finally he said, I know the love of Christ. And he said, the love of Christ controls me. That is, I know that I've been loved by Christ. This is the love that Christ has for us. Christ has for Paul. And he knew it. He knew that love was for him. And he knew the love of Christ because of what Christ had done. He said, I, I know the love of Christ because he died. He died for us. He died for me. He died for us so that we might live. And he said, that's, that's the expression of the love of Christ to me. And knowing that controls me, compels me to no longer live for myself, as he puts it, but to live for this one who died and rose again, that live for this one who gave himself. For me, as he would put it in another place. And so he was compelled, controlled, dominated by, captivated by. He could do nothing else other than to live for Christ. Once he knew this great love that Christ had for him. And you might say, well, well, Paul, why did knowing the, the love of Christ compel you in such a way? And he would say, well, because of what the love of Christ did. The love of Christ freed me from my self-centeredness, freed me from my self-focus, freed me from my preoccupation with me. Because you see, something happened. We said this last week. We've said this a ton, so you know this. Something happened when Jesus died. Now, something happened to Jesus when Jesus died, but something also happened to all those in him, all those he represented all those that we would know who would come to believe in him. Something happened in Jesus. He took the wrath of God. He died for the sins of sinners. And when he died, Paul said, we died. Right? When he died, we died. When he rose, we rose. 
We are in him. So something happened to us. And when that happened, the penalty for sin was paid through Jesus for us. And the power, the dominion, the dominating power of sin was broken. So that I'm no longer enslaved to it. And so Paul said, I live for Christ now because I can. (laughs) I've been freed. I no longer have to live for myself. I no longer have to be the center of my universe. I no longer have to pretend like I'm in control of everything and everything depends on me. I don't have to. That was killing me. Not only killing me just in the context of my life, but killing me spiritually and killing me eternally. It was, it, 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 it had taken me out of the realm of God and being in his favor. But now through Christ, you see, that dominating power of sin is broken. And so now I can do what I've always been meant to do, which is not live for myself, but to live for him. And why wouldn't I if I could? I mean, why wouldn't I live for him rather than myself? Living for myself kills me. Living for him brings life. And so Paul says, I do it because I can. And so you see, one of the implications of Paul's laying out of the crucifixion of Jesus, of the, of the death and resurrection of Jesus of the cross, is that it frees us to no longer live for ourselves, but now to live for him. And that, you see, is real life. Now there's another implication. And that's what follows in verse 16. He says now, from now on, meaning prior to my conversion, prior prior to coming to know Jesus really, uh, prior to having believed in him and having sins forgiven and being justified and all that. He said, prior to that, so he says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Before that, we could only regard people according to the flesh. But now... We no longer need to and no longer should regard uh, people according to one another, especially other believers, according to the flesh. Now, what does he mean by that? And why does that follow on the heels of what Christ has done? All right? Are you with me? We doing all right? All right, I know. There you go. Just checking. See if you're breathing. Um, when Paul says that we no longer regard or consider one another according to the flesh. What's that mean, according to the flesh? Now, the New International Version has interpreted that for us, and and their interpretation is to no longer regard one another from a worldly point of view. So, according to the flesh, the interpretation of that version anyway, is no longer uh, regard one another from a Worldly point of view. What's, what's that all mean? Well, if we take the first one first, the translation, that is the more literal translation, not regard one another according to the flesh. Now, you know the word flesh in the scripture, especially the New Testament, can mean a number of things. One, it can mean this stuff, right? Our flesh. You refer to our bodies. Um, however, usually, especially when Paul uses it, it has a, a figurative, a more theological, we could say, meaning flesh stands for our sinful condition, our sinful nature, that which we received, inherited, got at the fall when Adam and Eve sinned, this corruption of, of, of 
of ourselves, really, that flesh. One writer, John Stott, puts it like this. He says, here, flesh refers to our whole humanness viewed as corrupt and unredeemed. Our fallen egocentric human nature, or more concise, our sin-dominated self. All right? That, 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 that's nature in us. That self-centered, that evaluates all of life according to how it affects me. Right? That self-centeredness, that egocentric. Uh, Paul uses it um, helpfully, I think, uh, in Romans and chapter 8. If you've got a Bible or something, you can flip to that or point to that or whatever you do, get there. Um, I know none of you are looking at your email, so just flip to this. If uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 5. He writes, well, let me begin with verse 1, that way you'll see it. But the first four is just just... A gift, and then we begin with verse 5. Therefore, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, sinful nature, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Then verse 5. This will help us. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it doesn't submit to God's God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So you get a sense that the, this flesh is a mindset, a mind set not on God, not on what would please God, but set really on ourselves and what would satisfy us apart from God, outside of God. You, you, you see that here in this, in this passage. And we know, again, that comes from uh, Genesis 3, that comes from this early time, in our history, in our story, you see, it begins with this human history, human story, human narrative. It begins with the creation of Adam and Eve, and then their temptation by Satan. And when he tempts, uh, first he gets Eve to doubt the word of God. Did God really say? To doubt God's word. And then to present this temptation, that if you eat of this tree, you can be like God. That is, you can be autonomous. You, you can be the one who, who rules over all things. You, you can be the one who determines what is good and evil. And you can live to satisfy your own desires. Right? And that was the temptation. And they fell to it. And, and it killed them. Spiritually. And ultimately, physically as well. But more importantly, it killed this relationship. Uh, that they had with God. And so as we read through the scripture, we find, for instance, uh, in Genesis just chapter 6, that the, uh, the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of human beings were evil continuously. So that was the pervasiveness of this corruption within us. It's just true. And then we read in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, uh, Jeremiah writes, 
that the heart, that is the very essence of who we are, our guts, the heart of human beings is, 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 is deceiving. It's deceiving. It deceives us. We can't really trust it apart from God because it will value things wrongly. It'll say, no, no, this is really valuable. This is really important. This is really beautiful. This is really great. And, and it isn't. So our hearts deceive us, you see. And, and Jesus speaks very pointedly. He says, you know, men, human beings, love darkness rather than light. That's telling with us because we're self-focused and we miss what is really true. Uh, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and says that our, our minds are darkened. They're, we live in the futility of our thinking apart from God. We can't trust, we can't trust our thoughts, really. Um, and, and we see that. We see that in the context of our lives. We see this in self-centeredness, this inward pointedness. You know, Jesus, in a different context, uses this very vivid illustration of the log in the speck. Yeah, he says, he says, he says, we're uh, willing to take a speck out of somebody else's eye, just a little thing. And we're walking around with this huge log in our own. We, we can't see it because, because we're so self-centered. And so we applaud ourselves so much that we're going to miss the big thing in our lives just to kind of dig the little, 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 little thing out of somebody else's life. That's, that's, that's our nature. That's the way we are. That's this self-focusedness. A friend of mine always asks the question, he says, what's the difference between major and minor surgery? And the answer is, minor surgery is what happens to you. Major surgery is what happen, happens to me. Uh, no, no matter what it is, if it happens to me, it's major. If it happens to you, well, I'll, you know, you'll be all right. Well, that's, that's the sense of it. We, we see the, the humor, but, but that's really, isn't it? That's very often the sense of it. You know, we... We make evaluations of others. We regard others. We consider others very often as, as how it relates to us. Do they exalt us? Do they honor us? If they do, we like that. Are they like us? Do they like us? Do they listen to me? Do they understand me? Do they speak my love language? That's creepy. Whatever that means. But do they speak my love language? I've heard that. Uh, uh, do, do, you know, I'm, I'm always concerned about, about how it falls back on me, you see. They understand me. They listen to me. They validate me. What do they do in the context of my, of, of for me? And if they do all that, then I, I regard them highly. And if they don't do all that, well, not, not really, not really so much, right? I don't really regard them so much. But the Holy Spirit in us according to this passage in Romans 8, works in such a way that we regard one another as God sees us. Now we take this other expression that the NIV uses, uh, regard, uh, we no longer regard uh, one another uh, in a worldly point of view, by a worldly point of view, from a worldly point of view. What does he mean by that? Well, when, when, when we use the word world, we, we mean this System really, this system that exists, that that promotes, that reinforces our sinful humanity, our sinful nature. For instance, in one John, First John, in chapter two, uh, verse 15, verse eight, verse fifteen, uh, Apostle John writes this: 
It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, we know that John 3.16 says God loves the world, and, and he does love the world. That's a different contextual use of the word world. Here, John is using it as this, this worldly system that, that promotes and that reinforces our sinful humanity. He says, so don't love that world. Don't embrace it. Don't want, don't want to be reinforced by that. Don't want to, 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 be, to, to love that. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. Verse 16 then lays it out. For all that is in, in the world, the desires of the flesh, that is the desires of the sinful nature, and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from God. You see that, that expression, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, very helpful because you see one of the ways that our hearts sinfully deceive us is that we have a tendency to be attracted to that which is external, that which looks really good. You remember in the Garden of Eden, when Satan wanted to tempt Eve, she looked at the fruit and saw that it was pleasing to her eyes. I think she got, that looks just like all the other fruit. That looks really good. That looks like I could eat that. That looks like that would be fine. I don't see any reason at all by looking at it that it wouldn't be fine. But it wasn't fine because there was something deeper about it than that. We have a tendency to easily judge by, by externals. You know, um, every good marketing person knows that packaging is everything, right? It's a bit of an overstatement, but we know if you package it well, you, people are attracted to it. Walk in the grocery store. Why are these things laid out the way they are? To grab your attention. And, and don't you hate it when you fall for that? But don't you fall for that? Right? Was bought a National Enquirer once. Thought, wow, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's right there. It's it's just. But we, we we get it. You know this. I mean, no matter what it is, whatever you have, the new one comes out, and the new one always looks better than the one you have, right? And it develops a longing in you for the new one. You look at your old one with disdain. And, and, and you want the new one. And then you buy the new one and you go, rats, it wasn't that much better. Right? And then the new one comes out and you look. And, and, and you know, the, I mean, the first class, anytime we, we do something on, 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 on marriage, especially how to, how to find a spouse, we always have to say, now remember, uh, you need to marry somebody not simply because of, of the physical attraction, Right? When Karen and I used to teach the pre-marriage class, uh, we would say things like, you know, don't marry for looks because at 50, everybody looks like this. Uh, <laughs> which hopefully, if you look like this when you're 50, you looked older than you should. Uh, but, uh, but, but, but you get the point. I mean, you know, you go through this long life together. I mean, things are going to change. Having with her, she's still as beautiful as she was when we were 15 and I met her. So I want you to know that. But for me, not so much. And so... Um, but, but you get that. We know that. We know that tendency in us to be attracted by, by the external. You know that it's easy to be attracted by a new job offer if it's a promotion and it'll make you look better in the eyes of others. And it's difficult. You know the struggle. How do you balance that? How do you get really free to make a good decision about that new job offer that'll make you look better in the eyes of others 
is that really a good fit for you? Would that be really better for your family? Would that really be better for your situation? And you have to evaluate all that. And that's tough to do when you have looming over you, wow, this would really bump me up in the eyes of all my friends. And what we know, we know the difficulty of, of, of that, making that kind of a, kind of a decision. Or, you know, picking a church, you know, what church do you go to? Well, do you go to the church where all the movers and shakers go? Or do you go to the church where all the popular people go, all the pretty people, all this kind of people, that kind of people? I mean, how do you, how do you make that decision? What's, what's really just, you know, attractive, if you will, about a church? How do, we, how do we get at the heart of it without being distracted by all of the, all of the externals about it? And what's ironic here, as Paul writes this, is this was the problem he was having with the people in Corinth. They were evaluating him according to appearance. They were evaluating him according to externals. They said of him, hey, he he doesn't look like much. He he doesn't really have a great appearance. He he doesn't really look strong when he's standing up in front of people. He's not very eloquent when he speaks. He doesn't talk much about his heritage. He doesn't talk much about any revelations that he has or visions that he has. He just simply kind of lays out this stuff about Jesus, you know, pretty regularly, pretty logically, just kind of lays it out. No pizzazz, you know, not like these other folks who've come in and they're really attractive. They have, they have, they have great ability to speak and they speak well and poetically and wonderfully and they're great to listen to and they're, again, very, very attractive. They, they talk all the time about the great experiences they've had and the big visions and revelations that, that they've had. Um, they've been doing this. They have letters of recommendation from people that say how wonderful they are. Paul doesn't have any of that stuff, you know. They, they, they get paid for what they do. They seem to be doing well. Paul won't even take any money. For what he does. I mean, they have possessions and things. They really look good uh, in the eyes of all of us. Paul's got pretty much nothing. He's got this little bag with a needle and something in it that he uses when he makes tents. And uh, other than that, he doesn't own a thing in the world. Ah. And Paul said, no, listen. Don't regard me according to the flesh. If you do, you'll miss it. You miss the gospel. And he says, I really know that. I really know that. Because I missed Jesus. Because I once regarded him according to the flesh. I, I regarded Jesus according to the flesh. And I saw that he wasn't very attractive. And I saw that there wasn't really much to say about him. You remember what the prophet Isaiah says about the coming Messiah in Isaiah 53. That there's nothing about him that uh, would be attractive, that would attract you to him physically. And, and, and that must have been true. I mean, that was true. Paul would not have been attracted if there wasn't anything like that. And, and, and I just saw him as an imposter, really. I thought he was going to kind of come and be strong and overcome the Roman authorities. And he didn't. In fact, it was the Roman authorities who had a hand in killing him. And so he didn't destroy them. They destroyed him. And, and I didn't see it. I didn't, I didn't see that he was the Messiah. I just thought he was an imposter who got what he deserved. Not only that, I... I really thought that I was something in the eyes of God. I really thought that uh, God accepted me, that I had favor with God because I was a Jew, because I was of the tribe of Benjamin, because I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, that um, that uh, uh, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, that according to the law, I was blameless. Everybody thought I was the best. And I thought that meant that God favored me. And I missed Jesus. 
wasn't true at all. And then when I met Jesus, I realized that none of that stuff about me mattered. Didn't do me any good at all. Didn't give me any more favor with God at all. All I brought to the table was my sin. And Jesus brought grace. He brought grace to me. And thus, you see, I was accepted by him. Not because of anything in me, but because of him and because of of him alone. And that was it, you see. So then, how do we regard one another? How do we regard other believers? Well, Paul lays that out in verse 17. He says, therefore, again, based on this, based on the fact that we no longer regard one another according to the flesh, here's how we regard each other. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, what's happened when we believe, what happens when we become followers, believers in Jesus, is that something very new takes place. There's a new creation, a recreation of who we are. And in fact, Paul's been playing with this creation language all along. If you turn back to chapter 4 and verse 6, we see it. Verse 6 puts it like this in chapter 4. For God who said that light shine out of darkness has shown... It, well, let me stop there. Where did you hear that last? Let light shine out of darkness. Where does that take you in the Bible? And then take you all the way back to Genesis 1. The, the power of creation happening. And God speaks it into existence. And he said, here's another creation. He said, let light shine out of darkness. Um, he said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, he says that when... We believe what's happened is that God has spoken light, this creative force, and he's brought new life, and we are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, as Paul writes to that church, he ends this beautiful discourse about our salvation in verse 10 by saying, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, our conversion, when we become believers in Jesus, what's happened is our identity has changed. We're now a new creation and part of a new creation. And we think about the old has passed, the new has come. I can't help but think of the prophet Jeremiah who speaks of an Old covenant being replaced by a new covenant. Really, more technically, an old covenant being fulfilled by a new covenant. And so, when we're told that we're new, a new creation, we realize we're part of this new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Verse 33. For this uh, is the covenant that I shall make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. And so in this new covenant, 
this new creation, what happens is that our inclinations, our hearts have changed. And so now we're inclined to embrace the commandments, the law, that which is true about God. We weren't before, now we are. New creation, new identity. Then he says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In other words, there's this certainty, this assurance that I really do now belong to God. There's no uncertainty, certainty that I do belong to God in this new creation as a new creature, as a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now, I know that he is my God and I'm his. And then he says, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they all shall know me. And so I know in this new creation, I can know the Lord, really know him intimately. And, and then he goes on to say, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. As a new creation, I'm assured that my sins are forgiven, that they're remembered by God no more. And thus I move to a new love, a new obedience, a new relationship. I'm a new creation. And then when I think of this new creation, I can't help but think about what's to come. Uh, in Revelation, in chapter 21, uh, we read this, verse 1. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There's a new heaven and a new earth. So I'm a new creation in the new covenant and a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation is coming. And so well, what the apostle is saying is, now you, you need to think about yourself and think about other people like this. You're a new creation in the new creation. It's in, invaded our time now. You're in it. It's here. Not in its fullness. Oh, a day will come and it will be in its fullness. But the new creation has begun. The old the new has come. You're in it. Now what that means is that when you look around at everybody else who's in it, you need to realize that you are no better than they. Or you need to realize you are no worse than they. See, in this new creation, nobody can be uppity. Right? Nobody can look at another person and say, I know you're a believer in Jesus, but you really don't deserve to be here like I do. But then again, what's the opposite of uppity? Downity? I don't think so. Whatever it is. Whatever the opposite of uppity, you can't be that either. So you can't come in and say, well, you know, I don't really fit here. I don't really belong here because I'm not like those people. No, 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 no. If you're a believer in Jesus, you fit here. We fit together. Because you see, as we like to say, 
the ground is completely level at the foot of the cross. In fact, the Apostle James says something just mind-boggling. And I say that just because it takes at least me forever to get my mind around it. I probably shouldn't introduce this at five minutes to 12. You're used to that. So James chapter 1, verse 9. Look at this. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also for the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, talks first to the lowly brother. So this is a Christian brother who's lowly regarded in the eyes of the world lowly right now in those days the lowly consisted primarily of widows and orphans because they had no one to take care of them now may not be true today as much as it was then but that's the point lowly so humble so poor even insignificant in the eyes of the world and what he says to believers who find themselves regarded by the world that way is that you need to boast or take confidence in your exaltation, your high position. We say, how can that be? Because you're a believer in Jesus. Because according to Jeremiah chapter 9, you boast not in your riches, you boast not in your knowledge, but you boast in this, that you know the Lord. And that's an exalted, that's a new creation. That's an exalted position. So you fit. No matter what your past, no matter what your ethnicity, no matter what your situation in the eyes of the world, you exist and you, you I'm sorry, you fit in, in the body of Christ. And then he goes on to say, if you're rich, and here he could mean, I would think even somewhat likely to mean a rich Christian even that the rich Christian uh, needs to boast in his humiliation. He needs to realize that he brought nothing. That he didn't bring anything into this but his sin. His, his riches don't matter. His standing in the community doesn't matter. Uh, the way other people look at him, if they look at him highly, that doesn't matter. Brought nothing into any of this other than his sin. And so he needs to boast in his humility, in his humiliation to say, none of this that I have makes me anything. The only thing that makes me anything is the grace of God. That's how all we come to this. So if you think because of your past, if you think because of your social standing, if you think because of how the world looks at you, you don't fit May I gently say, you're wrong. You do. You fit as any other believer fits. You brought nothing but your sin. And you received the grace of God. And let me say that if you think that you brought something, 
you think that you deserve to be here more than anybody else because of your standing, because of your goodness, may I say less kindly, you're wrong. All you bring to this place is your sin. And we all receive together the grace of our Lord Jesus. No longer should any of us regard any one of us according to the flesh or from a worldly point of view. Because if that's still what we're doing, we'll miss Jesus. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us, that we'd get it, that I'd get it, that we'd all get it, that we'd know that we're saved only by faith in Christ through the grace that comes from you through him and nothing else. May we together grow up not regarding one another as high or low, but simply regarding one another as those who have been saved by grace through faith. None of us deserves it. (laughs) All of us, I pray, have received it. So be with us, I pray. Cause us to be a people that walks humbly before you. Cause us to be a people that knows you. Because we realize, God, that the cross doesn't exalt us at all. It exalts Jesus. doesn't make us look good, it makes him look good. So we bask in his glory, we receive from his grace. I pray, Father, for those among us who at this moment in time may be feeling very low and insignificant, and I pray that you would raise them up to realize that loved by you, is all that really matters and loved by you. I pray they should be loved by us as well. And I pray that if there's any among us who has a hint of self-righteousness, that uh, you would deal with that, be it in me or any of us, that we may walk humbly before you. Father, we have needs We're a people with needs, and so we lift them to you. For those who are struggling and fighting and facing cancer, we pray that you would bring healing. Marjorie Miller, of course, and our dear Mecky, that you would be with them and others as well. Pray for Cindy Hornberger as she um, recovers from hip replacement surgery. Pray for uh, Hannah Randolph's grandmother, Marietta, as she last I knew was clinging to life. I pray if you take her soon that she will receive from you a homecoming that's glorious and that her family can 
share in that joy. If you keep her here for longer, that she would be a blessing to you and to them. For all of us, Father, I pray that the word would go forth from this place in such a way uh, that people would know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.